Jesus is King. Welcome to the One Peter Five podcast. I'm Timothy Flanders. I am the editor of chief of One Peter Five, Rebuilding Christendom. This podcast is an introduction to One Peter Five and the editorial stance that we are taking. It is about uniting the clans against the St. Gallen Mafia. But specifically, how do we do it? And we're going to lay out in this podcast how we intend to find our place at 1 Peter 5, our own contribution at 1 Peter 5 to the movement of Unite the Clans against the enemies of the Holy Church, but in particular, St. Gallen Mafia. Now, we're going to have another show and another stance on the COVID-1984 regime. We're not going to talk about that today just because it's another complicated topic that has a lot of different layers to it as well. But in this show, we're going to talk about the St. Gallen Mafia and a little bit about traditionalism as it exists in the history of the church in the modern period since 1773. So if you don't know who, if you're not familiar with my work or my writing, my, as I said, my name is Timothy Flanders. I live in the Midwest. I am, uh, a husband and a father of four children. And I've been a Catholic since the, actually the ascension of Pope Francis. I've been a writer for one Peter five since 2019. My first piece was on my conversion from Eastern Orthodoxy. I was raised in various Protestant sects. I got into Messianic Judaism for a while and I converted to Eastern Orthodoxy eventually, but finally through the grace of God and the prayers of the mother of God came to communion with Rome shortly after Pope Francis was actually elected. So I, I've never actually been a Catholic except under Pope Francis. So the article that I wrote was uh, why I do not, why I came from Eastern Orthodoxy came to Catholicism under Pope Francis and I don't regret it. And I still don't regret it. And that, uh, that article explains why I have, have absolutely no regrets about converting from Eastern Orthodoxy. And Eastern Orthodoxy is a whole nother topic, which is very complicated as well. So we're not going to get into that either. But if you have any questions about me, feel free to contact me at any time. Editor at onepeter5.com. Happy to talk to anybody, explain any particular thing or any questions you have. Please contact me. I'll be interacting with uh, live chat. So if you have any questions or thoughts anytime during the show, we'll just talk. This is just going to be an informal conversation between you. Uh, the readers and me, the editor, we're trying to restart the podcast, and I'm not sure how often we'll be able to do the podcast. One Peter Five is an online journal, above all, it is really a written media. That's the primary content that we put out. Um, and I'm trying to, I, I'm going to set up what Crisis has in terms of the where you can go to the website and then you can just click the audio, so it just reads the the article for you. Cause I, I know that audio is, is definitely one of the best methods for, you know, busy people. And, and it's very helpful to have somebody just read the article, but you can do things with articles that you cannot do on podcasts. You can't do it. You know, this is really, I think the, it's the really the original written form. This is, this is sort of a sacred thing. As, as we know, the logos of God, the verbum, uh, which is caro factum est, it, which becomes man. Um, the word is powerful and there's something about writing and putting this together and this content. So um, 
one Peter five is primarily online on like, online journal, but we're trying to do this podcast as well to reach out in this way. Um, there will be other podcasts coming out soon this month. Uh, we have a few others on tap, uh, which we'll get into. Um, so we're probably going to release two to four this month. And then, but I'm not, I just, I can't promise particular frequency. We're still figuring everything out. And um, so I'm still gathering all the writers together and everything. So, uh, which reminds me, um, we are, are still, we are in need of more money to pay enough writers to do all the things that we want to do at one Peter five. So my budget is literally not enough to pay all the writers that I want to hire for this publication. For example, I have an expert on Freemasonry that I want to hire. I have an expert on the occult that I want to hire who can write regularly on the occult and what's going on with the occult in the, in the world today. Um, I want to hire more people for the Synod Watch, which is the which is the thumbnail for this video. Uh, the, the, the two individuals on this are uh, the upper right-hand corner. If you didn't read the articles already from Julia Maloney, the upper left corner is Cardinal Martini, who is the architect of this whole synod of synodality, this whole synodality nonsense that we're dealing with right now. He's the architect. And then we have uh, McCormack, who is also involved in the St. Gallon Mafia. So this is all the St. Gallon Mafia's wicked nightmare come true, which Pope Francis is now trying to impose on us. And so I want to hire more writers for the Synod Watch. I, I, but this is all your support. So more support you can give us, the more writers we can hire, the more quality writing content that we can put out at one Peter five. So thank you for your support. Uh, as always, it's, it is a tax deductible deduct, uh, tax deductible donation in the United States. If you're in the United States, um, but we, we need to get into all these topics. We got a lot to talk about. So, uh, let me pull up my notes. I, I, I began this show without even getting my notes out. Um, cause I've just been one of those days flying and going too fast, trying to get everything done. Um, so today and this week, just a reminder, today is a holy day of opportunity which is the Ember Days. Now, there's two different ways to calculate the September Ember Days. So if you're pre-1955 or 1962, you may have several about in last uh, last week, but this week also is Ember Days for many others as well. I believe it's 1962 is this week, um, so it may be the more mainstream. But Ember Days, if you're not familiar, is a Thanksgiving for the summer, and a supplication for the fall in general. It's marking all the seasons as a fasting and praying Wednesday, Friday, and Saturday. And so it's a holy day of opportunity because we're not bound to actually fast, but it used to be a rule. So we still can do this freely. And this is a perfect, perfect thing to talk to, talk with the kids, uh, bring out your, your fall decorations. If you're in a climate like that or, or different fall things or look forward to fall things, talk, talk with that about your kids uh, pray with your kids, give thanks for the summer, things that God gave you or the or the children uh, in the summer. It's a great practice. And next week is Michaelmas. So make sure that you create a Satan pinata for your kids for Michaelmas. That's been uh, one of our favorite things to do at the Flanders family. Um, so we're just a couple things, and then we'll get more into what we're going to talk about, the meat of our presentation here. 
Um, this Friday, we'll have another podcast, which will announce the other big ongoing series. So the big ongoing series right now is Synod Watch. That's going to be going on uh, indefinitely. Hopefully, we can end that soon. But this is sort of we're in the era of the Synod Watch now because of what Cardinal Martini began and what the St. Gallen Mafia began with electing Pope Francis. And now that Pope Francis seemingly has been doing their bidding with this whole synodality, now we're in this era of this insanity, of this nonsense. So the Synod Watch is, is an in-depth analysis, both historical and current day news for discussing this manipulation of synods. Now, obviously we know that this happened at Vatican II. And in fact, there were also issues that were going back even generations before that. There were actually aspects of this that happened at Vatican I as well. And this is another topic that we can get into another, another time. But this is the, uh, the uh, concept of Manipulating synods is actually a very old one. It was actually happening during the ecumenical synods in the East, in the, the first through seventh ecumenical councils, particularly the fifth ecumenical council is a great example of manipulation because the emperor Justinian basically had all his handpicked bishops and he was just sending his army if he didn't agree with his synod. And so this is, this is an example of this manipulation that was happening, but nevertheless, God always brings good out of evil. And so even the machinations of evil men, the enemies of Christ, with these, these methods of manipulation, God always brings good out of evil. And that's what we hope for even in our own day. So um, Synod Watch is one, one big series, and we're going to launch the next big one which uh, this Friday. And that's going to be part of our uh, critical part of our editorial stance. We'll also be announcing a new contributing editor next week. Uh, I'm recording a podcast with him later today. Um, let me just bring up, if you haven't looked at our editorial board, that is our, those are the people who are helping to shape this venture, this online journal. Uh, so those are the people involved. And we're going to bring on another individual which we will announce next week. I'm really excited for him because um, I, I've always loved his work and I'm really glad that he's going to be on board. So, um, so stay tuned for that. Um, the editorial stance. Um, this is the editorial. I'm just going to bring this up just so that if you haven't read this and if you go over and read this, this is just breaking down where we are in this history and where we intend to go. Most of all, at 1 Peter 5, we want to be traditional in this, especially in the sense that we are rebuilding Christendom. We are not only against modernism, but we are for Christendom. And that means that we're not simply critiquing the evil, we're also providing a solution. We are providing a practical plan to rebuild Christendom. And this is what we're going to talk about today. What is the plan? What's the plan of 1 Peter 5? What's our plan? Now, all, all traditional apostolates, we are uniting with all, all traditional apostolates in United the Clan. Um, you know, I'm in contact with Michael Matt over at the Remnant. 
by the way, before I forget, because I'm going to forget things, you need to go sign up for the the um, Catholic Identity Conference, which is coming up in just a few weeks at the Remnant. Um, so this is the uh, it's in the it's in the show notes. So if you look look down um, Remnant newspaper, here's the you go sign up for the live stream so you can be a part of that conference. It's a critical conference. They'll have uh, Vigano and Schneider will be there, and also uh, an Easter bishop, uh, three bishops, some priests speakers uh so sign up for the catholic identity conference that's coming out that's with the remnant newspaper um and i've also worked closely with uh catholic family news my friend matt gaspers over there so we are working together with other apostolates we are completely on board with united clans and so this as i said this shows we're trying to explain how we think that we fit in at one peter five with united clans looking around at the different traditional apostolate, what people are doing, what can one Peter five do to join this effort? And all credit is due to Michael Matt for starting this movement. So if you read this editorial stance, most of all, the most important thing that we always want to emphasize, which we'll get back to in a minute is the primacy of the spiritual, the primacy of the spiritual, the spiritual is everything and the cross first and foremost. Most of all, in order to be crusaders against modernism and for Christendom, crusaders must take up the cross above all. We must, again, love suffering. If we want to be against modernism, we need to be against the modernist addiction to pleasure, addiction to comfort, which leads ultimately to the vice of effeminacy, which is the vice of effeminacy is the addiction to pleasure, which causes a reluctance to suffer, according to St. Thomas. So we live in this modernist era where we are so scared of suffering. And we see this obviously with the COVID-1984 regime. We see that the entire world went after their comforts because all the enemies needed to do was dangle the stick of comforts in front of anybody. And they immediately dropped all their rights and liberties as individuals or communities and went after their pleasures. So we need to root this out. And the only way to root it out is by once again, loving suffering. This is a critical spiritual aspect of every Christian's life. We make the sign of the cross for a reason. We make the sign of the cross because the cross is our life. The cross is our life. Our Lord said, unless you take up your cross and die. Taking up your cross and following Jesus, you know what that meant when he said that? It meant you go to die in the most humiliating, excruciating fashion that was known at that time. Jesus Christ says, unless you accept all this suffering that I Accept in my passion and follow me. You cannot be my disciple. This is the only path to resurrection. If you want to rebuild Christendom, you must take up your cross. And this is the primacy of the spiritual. We must. And so what I mean by that is we can get really caught up in the vice of curiosity. The vice of curiosity, St. Thomas says, is the obsession with useless knowledge 
which ultimately hinders your spiritual life. So this, this quote here from uh, a great crusader of the 20th century, Plinio de Correa de Oliveira, he talks about how the cross is the central piece of Christendom. So we can get caught up in the corruption of the of the Vatican or things. We can get caught up and and wonder and be following news on Twitter and all these things that are happening. And we can get caught up in the vice of curiosity. Now, we need to understand what's going on to be aware, especially as fathers. Fathers need to be aware of what's going on so they can protect their children, their family. But not to an excessive degree. St. Thomas says always the virtues are always a mean between an excess and a defect. So we don't need an excessive amount of information about what's happening in the Vatican or this or that or whatever. We don't need an excessive amount. And we don't need, a, we don't need to be totally ignorant of it either. But we need the right amount that we need to be aware to fulfill the duties of our state in life. So the primacy of the spiritual, this is the first and foremost. Once we do the spiritual, then, and only then, can we deal with the crisis in the church. So that is what 1 Peter 5 we hope to do, practically speaking. And one of the critical things about this is bringing more priests, bringing more priests to be writers. Because this is a critical part about building Christendom is restoring the two swords. And we don't have time to get into this today is it's so so much more complex but there's two swords of christendom there is the spiritual sword and the temporal sword and that's the clergy and the laity and that's what forms the church today we live in the era of clericalism which began in the 19th century clericalism is where the pope can say the death penalty is inadmissible well that is an overreach into the temporal sword the temporal sword is the laity who rules we rule the secular world as lay people. It is our final decision about whether the death penalty could be applied in a given situation in a particular case because we rule the temporal order. The clergy give us the faith and morals. When they speak on morals, they speak of general principles, especially when they regard politics and the economy. Those are general principles. And the laity, the temporal sword, our job is to then apply that. So uh, Andy has a great comment. Save yourself first, your family second, the church and the world when you have time and grace enough. That's a great way to break it down, Andy. Uh, yes, if you're not saving your own soul, you certainly can't save your family. And if you're not saving your family, you should. You have no business dealing with the church. Uh, and, and you'll hear me say this again and again. Social media is the devil. <laughs> Social media will send you to hell so quickly because it's designed to addict you to pleasures and, and pride. That's what it's designed for. So if, if you're not aware of this and you're using Twitter, you could be, as RTF Mike says, you're in the devil's playground. So unfortunately, we are on. We have to be on Twitter because people are there. That's what we do at One Peter Five. We are on Twitter because that's where people are. That's where Catholics are. We're going to the people to try to win everyone over to this new crusade. But Andy Malone has a great priority here. Save yourself first, then your family second. So if you're not prioritizing your own soul and your family's soul, and that's not already in order, go get off the internet, 
work on your priorities first. That's the most important thing. And that's what we're trying to definitely do at one Peter five. So, um, great comment, Andy. Thank you. Um, so let me continue. Um, so we talked about the spiritual temporal, so I don't have time to get into that more, but what we have, especially in the modern period is we have this constant revolution, which I hold began, I, I dated especially to 1773. What happened in 1773 was the suppression of the Jesuits. Now, at this time, the Jesuits were actually the good guys. Now they're the bad guys. They're completely corrupted. But at that time, they were the good guys in the sense that they were actually preaching the gospel across the world and building Christendom across the world. And they were suppressed because the Pope, Pope Clement, was pressured by Masonic powers to suppress the Jesuits. And after the Jesuits were suppressed, the Masonic powers took over the educational institutions of the Jesuits. They took over all of their property. They seized all their land, uh, all, everything they were doing. It was a complete capitulation to the world by the Pope. And it, it was a complete betrayal that happened in 1773. And th this is what I really think is the real beginning of the modern period is when the Pope makes such a bad betrayal of Christendom pressured by Masonic powers. He, he gives the world over to the Masons is what he does in 1773 and the Masons take over and they have promoted constant revolution ever since revolution of sons against fathers, daughters against mothers, revolution of wife against husband, revolution of subject against king, revolution against every hierarchy. And the church has been reeling ever since trying to patiently articulate the principles. Now, above all, this is a revolution against truth, goodness, and beauty. It is a revolution against truth, goodness, and beauty. It's a revolution against logos, the logos of truth, goodness, and beauty. Truth is the logos of what man knows. Truth is what man knows. Goodness is what man does. And beauty is what man makes according to logos, according to God. And this has been a revolution against all three of those on every level, both natural and supernatural. And an attack on hierarchy in the name of a false equality. And so the church has been trying to articulate this and defend against this, but there's been an inner tension, an inner tension in the church that we now witness today in the post-Vatican II era, because there's always been one aspect of the Catholics who saw some good in the modern era, because there actually was some good in the modern era. And this is what made things complicated and deceptive because the problem was that there were some injustices being meted out on people that were just that, that were unjust. And the, the, so the, so the revolt was just the, for example, the oppression of slaves. And this was then used by the revolutionaries to promote things as evil as feminism or Marxism. Like Marxism obviously comes from 
a, a, a using and abusing of the poor. So there's an actual oppression happening where the poor are being used and abused by the rich or whatever. And the Marxists twist that into their wicked Marxism. And so we have this complexity of the modern period where the enemies of Christ are able to use something against the church. And so the church then is being divided as well because there are some things that there are, there are seen in the modern period that they're trying to work with. And so there's always been these divisions. And this happened from the very beginning of the French Revolution because Pius VII, as a bishop, actually was willing to work with the, the French Revolution. When the French invaded Italy, he said, we can be good Democrats. And this was right at, right around 1800. So the, the division between, so now in the Vatican II era, we have the, the wing of the church that wants to accommodate with the modern world has become dominant. But that was already present way back in 1800, even among the person who was elected as Pius Seventh, And that's why this is really complex. The modern period and all this, these problems are very complex. So where do we fit in at 1 Peter 5? Now, in our modern period, there is a dramatic shift. As we said, the post-Vatican II era is a dramatic shift in the complexity of this anti-revolutionary, counter-revolutionary movement. The church is always counter-revolutionary in the sense that we defend logos itself, the logos of truth, goodness, and beauty. The, truth, the church may support certain counter-revolutions, which are restoring the order of society. But the church does not support revolution against God and his ordering of truth, goodness, and beauty. And so we see, especially in the post-Vatican II area, era, is the uglification of the world. And this is something that we... Are, is very close to our hearts at 1 Peter 5, is the aesthetic restoration. The concept of beauty. Architecture. Music. These are critical for Catholic culture. Beauty is critical, the restoration of beauty. So, I've got a few comments. Let me just... Um, yeah, you can't be a Mason and a Catholic. I'm not sure when the excommunication came down, uh, when that actually became canon law. It may have been 1917, but um, yes, you are excommunicated as a Catholic. You cannot be a Mason and a Catholic. Does that mean Marxism is a form of usury? I'm not sure what you're referring to. Um, usury is... Uh, if you're saying using and abusing the poor, if you're defining usury as using and abusing the poor, yes, in a sense, uh, in that sense, if basically Marxism is is the worst abuse of the poor because it's a deception of the poor. It's telling the poor, this is your answer for your oppression. And it's it's decimated the church, especially in South America, through the, the most poisonous thing of all, which is liberation theology, which is just Marxism. Uh, polluting the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
So in that, if you're talking about just using and abusing the poor, yeah, absolutely. Marxism would be sort of a form of usury if you if you define it that way. But usury is, is more of a technical term for technical financial transactions, which in itself is extremely complex. And so we'd have time to get into usury. But uh, basically, the church still condemns usury in principle, but the church does not make... Um, definitive judgments on particular usurious transactions since 1745. That's when Benedict the Fourteenth uh, made the last magisterial pronouncement on usury, which basically gave the principles without making definitive judgments on particular transactions. Because modern finance is so complex that the church shouldn't even get into that, and it's very wise, I think, that they don't. Um, yeah, I got some comments. Latin Mass Society of North North Coast. Um, thanks for your comments. God bless. Uh, yeah, I have a, a great respect for Michael Matt. Uh, he's a great crusader. Uh, really been, I mean, he's been doing this for since 1967, and his family's been doing this for since the 1870s. So, it, at least, especially in America, he is really one of the Godfathers, and his family is is needs to. Uh, they deserve the respect uh, that they've earned as crusaders. So, where do we fit at, at one Peter five? Well, the what we need to do at this point now, what where we're at is we are, we have been sort of restarted with Tradiciones Custodes. We're in a similar situation that our fathers were in in 1969 and 1970. And I want to direct all all readers to this excellent series from Kwasniewski one of our contributing editors, one of our regular columnists. His articles appear every Wednesday. He's also coming out with a new book in a few months, which is great. Uh, it's about the clergy and the laity. I'm, I'm really excited to read it. I haven't yet read it, but I'm really excited to read it. So that, that text will be coming out. But if you look at, um, let's see, where is this? The three-part series. This is... Kwasniewski, this is what we need to do. Um, let me see. What was the first one he came out with? Yeah, here it is. It's time to imitate our fathers. So this is, if you go, go to this article, it's a three-part series. This is where Kwasniewski, in his wisdom, brings us back to the period that we were at in 1969 and 1970. What did our fathers do at that time when the Latin mass was suppressed at that time? So the, the enemies of Christ induced the Holy Father in 1969 to suppress the Latin mass. As we know, as Benedict XVI told us, it was never actually technically suppressed, but de facto, it's, it certainly was suppressed. What did our fathers do then? They had no, almost no bishops supporting them. Our, other than Archbishop Lefebvre and Castro Mayer and others, very few bishops. What did they do? We're in a similar position, but we're actually in a better position than our fathers were. But our, our fathers were in a much more difficult position. What did they do? What did they do to bring us to this point? We need to look back at what our fathers did at that time, 
this is what this is what it means first and foremost to unite the clans at one peter five is what we want to do is we want to return to the zeal of our fathers because our fathers already fought this fight and won they won with Samorum pontificum obviously it wasn't the full it wasn't the full fight but it was a massive win it was uh i mean tomorrow pontificum was an exoneration of the traditionalist movement that had been vilified for some 40 years as schismatic it was an exoneration of this so-called schismatic movement that had been vilified and condemned it was an exoneration they fought for 40 years plus and they were exonerated so now we need to fight for another 40 years plus so that our movement also can be exonerated. And the good thing is we're in a much better position than our fathers were at that time. But how we see the first thing, how do you unite the clans against the St. Gallo Mafia? So I'm finally getting to the, the point of what I wanted to get to here. Um, how do we unite the clans? Well, we, re we return to the zeal of our forefathers. And so what is, what is the zeal of our forefathers? Well, in the editorial stance, we talk about some of the godfathers of the traditionalist movement, especially after it, it began a new era. So traditionalism in, in, the era, in the modern era since 1773, traditionalism in its essence of truth, goodness, and beauty is the anchor against modernism defined as Pius X does in Pacendi as the false evolution of dogma. This was condemned at Vatican I as whoever says that the doctrines may evolve according to a greater knowledge in a way that's different than what the church understood and understands, let it be anathema. This is traditionalism in and of itself. Now there is a true development of doctrine that is an actual true development against the evolution, the false evolution of the modernists. But traditionalism itself as a school of thought is that providing the anchor against the false evolution of doc doctrine by the modernists and for Christendom, for rebuilding the city of God. So, who are the godfathers of this movement? This is what 1 Peter 5, what we want to do is to is first and foremost, the primacy of the spiritual is the greatest Thomas theologian of the 20th century, Father Renchardold Gary Goulagrange. Above all, he wrote in the 1940s that certain aspects of the Nouvelle Théologie were going to lead to a rebirth of modernism. So he, in fact, was a prophet. He was a traditionalist before the modern traditionalist period because he understood what was going on in the 1940s. And he said, this will return to modernism. So if you click this link, it goes to his critical essay published by Catholic Family News, which is, where is the new theology leading us? And this was written in 1946. In 1946, the greatest Thomas of the 20th century predicted everything that we see today. And that is why he is, first and foremost, the godfather of the traditionalist movement, because he is 
a Thomist theologian. He's a priest. The primacy, the spiritual, the spiritual sword comes first in Christendom. As Pius X says, Christendom cannot be built unless the church lays the foundation according to God's design, according to the city of God. The spiritual sword must first lay the foundation. It begins with the priest, and then the laity follow. The temporal sword then can build Christendom according to its own sphere of influence, which is the temporal order, while the clergy build the spiritual order of Christendom. And so we need to return, first and foremost, to our our own godfather really is this Reginald Gary Goulagrange. Now, just as the traditionalists were vilified as schismatic for 40 years, so too was Reginald Gary Goulagrange. He was vilified as some kind of stuck-up anti moder anti uh, uh aggiornamento uh stuck up you know neo-scholastic old man who can't get with the times whatever he was he's taught for 50 years as the most prominent and influential greatest um, thomas theologian he was a holy man he wrote on mystical theology he filled the lecture halls in the vatican in Rome, where he taught, he filled the lectures halls. People loved to hear him because he was a saint. He's one of those a non-canonized saint. So this is really our godfather, is this great priest, Father Reginald Gary Glugrange. So this is one of the aspects of what we want to do is recovering this zeal of our forefathers, beginning with Father Reginald Gary Glugrange. And then we have what he influenced was the encyclical Humani Generis, which was about some false opinions threatening to undermine Catholic Catholic doctrine. Once again, the writing was on the wall. The warning was there before Vatican II. And then at Vatican II, it was the Cetus Internationalis Patrum. This was the minority group, which was the, especially the Curia. It was made up of the Roman theologians in the Curia, but as the name suggests, it was international. In particular, two, two bishops, one uh, Archbishop Lefebvre, who was a Frenchman but had worked in Africa for decades before this, and de Castro Mayer, who was from Brazil, and others. They were an international working group, and they were working against the other group, which was the European Alliance. So which one is more representative of Catholicism, which is a universal religion across the whole globe? One is, one is the European alliance, which has a rather, uh, rather obtuse view of the world because they're only looking at things from the Northern European perspective. And then we have the Cetus Internationalis. Now, this is not to say that the European alliance did not have some good points, but we don't have time to get into all the complexities of Vatican II. But I'm simply saying that at 1 Peter 5, we are trying to promote the thought of the Cetus Internationalis Patrum. That is, that is our role in the United Clans movement. So we're not trying to promote other aspects of other people. We're trying to promote the thought of Lefebvre, Ottaviani, De Castro Mayer, and the others in the Cetus. Now, this was taken up with, by who is the 
believed by some to be the doctor of the church of the 20th century, Dietrich von Hildebrand. Dietrich von Hildebrand was a German philosopher who fought against national socialism, Nazis, and communism. He fought both fearlessly, knowing he was about to be assassinated by Hitler. In fact, evidence suggests that Hitler invaded Austria to get Dietrich von Hildebrand. Dietrich von Hildebrand was reported, the Nazis said that he was the number one enemy of the Nazis. So he's the hammer of the Nazis, the hammer of the Marxists. And in the 1950s, he moved to America. He became the hammer of the liberals, the, the liberal secular uh, utilitarians in, in, the, in the American empire, in the United States and, and Americanists. And then in the 1960s and 70s, this is why he's called the doctor of the church. He becomes the hammer of the spirit of Vatican II and becomes a critical voice against the new mass, against the texts and rubrics of the new mass, which he articulates in various essays in the 60s and 70s. In fact, in 1965, before the council ended, he begged Paul VI to condemn heresies. And he saw what was happening immediately. And he spoke of the influence of Masons and communists on the church. But lamentably, the words of the doctor of the church was not heeded. But Dietrich von Hillerman is the, is the other great godfather of this period of the traditionalist movement, who is particularly influential in America, but also in Europe. And he founded the Roman Forum. The Roman Forum is an organization now led by the great Dr. John Rao. And also a reminder to go to SoundCloud. That's where the Roman Forum has all their, their audio content. There's a great lecture series from the Roman Forum. So the Roman Forum, if, you, if you're not familiar with that, that is what was set up by Dietrich von Hillebrand. It's a, I believe it's a yearly conference in Italy, which was the traditionalist conference on all these topics founded by Dietrich von Hildebrand. And John Rao had it in New York City uh, this this past summer because of the COVID-1984 regime. But there's a great lecture series over at um, the SoundCloud wh where John Rao, I, I believe it's six different lectures where he goes through the history of the traditionalist movement. That's a, after you read Kwasniewski's article, go listen to John C. Rao's excellent lectures where he goes through the, tr the history of the traditionalist movement, going back to the this very beginning in the 1960s with Dietrich von Hildebrand and all the heartache that our fathers went through to preserve the Roman rite of our forefathers, the ancient apostolic rite given to us from the Western rite all the way to 1962. And uh, another great godfather, obviously, is Michael Davies which was, uh, he was the president of Una Voce. Una Voce is another founding organization, and we're happy to have uh, a close relationship as, with them as well at 1 Peter 5. We're going to be releasing uh, promotional material for the president of Una Voce very soon about their new media uh, outreach. So Una Voce also, that was founded in, I believe it was 64, but that's also been a part of this movement. And as, as we say, the, the Federatio Internacionalis Una Voce, which obviously is a reference to the preface 
of the Latin mass, una voce decentes, with one voice chanting with the angels. So, um, so Michael Davies, another great scholar, he has a trilogy on the Latin mass. And he also, also, I believe it's a trilogy of defense of Archbishop Lefebvre. So 1 Peter 5, we are united to clans. We are working with the SSBX. We are not anti-SSBX. We are not on the side of the SSBX. We're on the side of the FSSP. We are united to clans. We're on the side of tradition. And so as we say in this, we respect and we spread the the message or the or the writings or the thought of Archbishop Lefebvre. And as Michael Davies said, he, he defended him. So if you, you can agree or disagree with particulars with Lefebvre, you know, different things that he did, you know, if you disagree with the consecrations, whatever, fine. But we're just trying to bring out the thought of these godfathers. Bring out the thought. Because at least one aspect of Lefebvre's work was exonerated in 2007, which was that the Latin mass had never been abrogated and was technically in principle always permitted. So Lefebvre, like the rest of the traditionalists, has been vilified as this schismatic for 30, 40 years. But if if promoters of modernism or promoters of Vatican II, if, if you know the promoters of Vatican II want us to sympathetically read the texts of Vatican II to try to understand them properly, well, I think it's fair that we read the text of Lefebvre and try to understand him properly. Is that not a fair thing to ask of all Catholics who are of charity and goodwill? Of course. Lefebvre never got his case. He never got his day in court. He asked for a court case, but Paul VI didn't give it to him. He never got his day in court. And so should we not give Lefebvre the respect that is due to him as a missionary converting thousands of souls in Africa? So that's 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 our opinion of Lefebvre. So we're going to be working with, uh, as one of our contributing editors, as uh, an affaled Lefebvreist, as uh, he is affectionately known uh kennedy hall of course so kennedy hall is one of our contributing editors and he writes for us and obviously my my own personal colleague in the work i've been working with him for a few years now on other things as well with with his own writing so lefebvre and and we also mentioned klaus gamber klaus gamber was a critic of the new mass who was also vilified as a schismatic but he was defended by none other than Joseph Ratzinger. So he had the courage to publish against the new mass. And then he was defended by Joseph Ratzinger. So what we're trying to do here at 1 Peter 5 is we're trying to do a restoring of these important texts. This is what we see as, as our role, is restoring and promoting, particularly uh, Gary Blue Grange, Dietrich von Hildebrand, Michael Davies, Lefebvre, these, these godfathers, promoting and distilling their thought as a part of the overall movement of traditionalism to show Catholics that traditionalism is not schismatic. Anything that is against charity, we are preaching charity because schism ultimately is against charity. 
That's what schism is. So when you uh, accuse traditionalists as, of schism, well, you're accusing them of having a lack of charity. Now, are some trads lacking charity? Of course, we're all lacking in charity in some ways. We all need to grow in charity, but we will preach and promote charity at 1 Peter 5 because schism is a sin. And so we will promote charity. The definition of mortal sin is the destruction of charity in the soul. So if you commit a mortal sin, you're losing charity. You're sinning against charity. You've lost charity. You can't go to heaven without charity. If you don't have charity, you go to hell. Charity is everything. God is charity. He who loveth not knoweth not God because God is charity. So we attend to make that very, very clear to all Catholics, whether the trad or not, that traditionalism is not schismatic and is truth and charity. So that's the first thing that we intend to do. And once again, we rely on your donations because we need to have experts who are well-versed in these topics to write things on these people to promote their thought. And we needed to pay them because they're, the, the worker is worthy of his pay. So we rely on your donations. So please donate if you have any means. Donate for this, this effort. Now, that's the first plan. So the first plan is producing this written content, promoting this thought. Now, the second plan is, in, in some ways, far more practical because it talks about the day-to-day -day life of each and every one of you, faithful Catholics, building Christendom in your families, your local communities, your parishes, your municipalities, your villages, your states, your nations. And that are all, that's all the practical things that we want to promote at, at um, 1 Peter 5. And that's all the other writing that we want to make. So we, we don't want to just be, we certainly don't want to be too academic with experts on all these people. We want to be very, very practical. As I said, providing the solutions, the solutions that we need to do practically. And it starts with making a Satan pinata for Michaelmas for your kids. Because most importantly, we want to pass down this faith to the children. Here's how we beat the St. Gallon Mafia. Is that we build Christendom in our families. As, as um, Andy pointed out earlier, we save our souls, we save our families. We build this Christendom in our families. I, I look once again, my, the Michael Matt family. I, I, we look at that. We can, we can look at the Matt family as an, as a model. They've passed down the faith from the beginning of Der Wanderer in the 1870s. They passed down the faith to their children. They've kept the faith. They've kept this family business going. This is, this is what we do to outlast the St. Gallon Mafia. The St. Gallon Mafia will not win because they can't build anything that lasts. As Pius XI says, anything that's not built on Jesus Christ will crumble. It will be destroyed because God will destroy it. Nothing that is not built on Jesus Christ will last. We may need to fight for another 40 plus years, but we will win this. But it starts with our own souls and our own families. Here's a few, uh, a few comments. D. Michael Davies did seller work and a convert. Absolutely. Freemasonry is profoundly anti-Catholic and satanic. It saddens me to see Bergoglio preaching Freemasonry and not Catholicism. Yes, many of the words and deeds 
of the Roman pontiff seemed to be promoting Freemasonry, and this is why the Masons praise him. So it's very difficult to approve, it's very difficult to prove who's a Freemason and who's not, because we live in a Masonic world where the Masonic ideas are just the air we breathe. So people just become Masons by osmosis now. And this is what we're dealing with. I think D is asking what text should we read that? Well, that's what we'll get into. I, I can recommend Dietrich von Hildebrand in particular, this text, the charitable anathema is phenomenal. The Hildebrand project is republishing all of his works. Archbishop Lefebvre, his one of his, uh, <clears throat> uh, let's see, where is that? This is uh, one of his more popular works, Open Letter to the Confused Catholics. You can also read biographies. Those are very good. The biographies, uh, they can be very helpful and inspiring because they're going through the lives of these godfathers and what they're doing and how they're interacting. There's the the godfather or the... Um, the biography of Dieter von Hildebrand is the soul of a lion. And then you have, um, well, I don't have it here. I think I have it upstairs. The biography of Lefebvre as well. Oh, time to pray. We'll pray at the end of this episode. Um, Jeanette is asking, is this who's taking over? Yes, I am the editor in chief, Timothy Flanders. So I am the, I'm taking over one Peter five. So I'm, I am the editor in chief of one Peter five. And we also have a, the editorial board as well. So that includes Dr. Peter Kwasniewski, Kennedy Hall, Eric Sammons, and others, Mike, Mike Cirilla, Joseph Shaw. Do I have any news on Vigano? I do not have news on Vigano. I, I do not actually don't have contact with Vigano. I have contact with Schneider, um, but I have not heard from Vigano in particular. Um, I know that Remnant and Catholic Family News do publish Vigano quite regularly, so I know that they do actually have contact with His Excellency um, Arch, uh, with uh, Vigano. And he is, once again, he will be at the Catholic, or he will be, I think, transmitting a message or, or Zooming live or something at the Catholic Identity Conference. So Vigano will be at the Catholic Identity Conference. So you can sign up for that below. Once again, that's, that's uh, put out by the Remnant. Um, so Vigano will be there. Um, so the other aspect of this is, as I said, your writings and how are you building Christendom as, as faithful Catholics? How are we building Christendom in our family? How are we restoring beauty in our family, restoring truth and goodness? So that is the other side of the writing that we'll have at 1 Peter 5 is not just these sort of academic experts and whatnot. We're going to have writing that's very practical, writing that is from the commonly faithful, telling us what is working for them, what works, what are the solutions. And there's all different aspects of that. Like I said, I'll, I'll talk about the Satan pinata. Um, but then we have, finally, I wanted to say the third point about how to beat the St. Gallon Mafia is to support good priests. We need to support good priests. We we have coming a and one of the articles that will be coming from our, a priest col columnist for one Peter five 
is, is very important for this effort. So we're going to have more priest columnists. You can check out our, our Friday column by Father Z. He writes a, a Friday column called Preparation for the Holy Sacrifice. And this is a great way to begin our preparation for the Holy Sacrifice on Sunday. So it's a, it's a meditation on the coming Sunday Mass. So every Friday, you can read this from Father Z. And he is, this is the foundation. And this is the foundation of our life. Once again, the primacy of the spiritual. And we're going to have another priest columnist coming soon. But we all need to support good priests in our area. The priests that we know personally, our own priest, any other priests, there's going to be more and more canceled priests. And we they need our support. We need to support the good priests who are willing to disobey a bishop in order to obey God. As we saw last year, bishops were even able to disobey divine law. Bishops were disobeying divine law by telling their priests not to administer the last sacraments. Even we had priests or canon lawyers and moral theologians condemning this as an, a violation of the divine law. Bishops do not have the authority to stop priests from administering the last sacraments to dying people, dying souls. They don't have that authority. Every priest is completely within their rights to disobey their order from any bishop because that is the salvation of souls. No bishop can say that. And when priests disobey that, they are going to be canceled by their own bishops and they need our support. They need to know that the, the sheep love them as their fathers and they run to them as children to their father because they know that their father will fight for them. So this is critical that we support these good priests because this will always end up as we build Christendom in our families. The difficulty will be finding priests. This is, for example, in the Cristero War. We just had an article a couple weeks ago from my friend Luis Medina when the Marxists tried to take over Mexico. The laity rose up to fight for Christendom. And they were abandoned by many bishops and even by Rome. Pius XI in one of, unfortunately, Pius XI had a few massive blunders in his pontificate, which were a massive mistakes, like condemning Padre Pio, or silencing him rather. The laity had to support the good priests at that time. The priests who were willing to see the situation and do what was right. And unfortunately, they have to be exonerated by history. They, they can't even be exonerated now. But when we know what's right, we have to do what is right. Now, this is not according to private judgment. This is one of the common criticisms of traditionalists. As we said, we are against schism because we are for charity. Charity, schism is a sin against charity. We are also against private judgment. 
if you read our our piece from our contributing editor Michael Cirilla, the morality of correcting the Pope, he discusses how when traditionalists are trying to correct or critique the Pope, they're doing so on the basis of publicly, definitively defined or manifestly clarified actions of prior magisterium. This is not private judgment. This is what the prior magisterium already made clear, publicly, manifestly. You don't have to have private judgment to understand what the magisterium had before. You were simply saying to the current magisterium, how is what you're saying not contradicting what was already authoritative? That is not private judgment. However, we need to guard against there can be a rash private judgment. You know, if you are going off into your own world and your own private judgment and, and making all these crazy speculations or whatever in your private little world, that can happen. But we need to make a distinction here because the critics of traditionalism, they built up a straw man based on some people over here are making private judgment. And this is what we see most of all in Tradiciones Custodes. Tradiciones Custodes is built upon a massive straw man against the traditionalist movement. And it's a falsehood that the traditionalists are schismatic, that the Latin Mass is just about these priests, not about the movement of the people, when in fact the Latin Mass is a popular movement of the laity and the priests actually were imposing all these things to a great degree. So we intend at 1 Peter 5, our mission is to rebuild Christendom. That is what we are for. We are for Christendom first, and then we are against modernism because we are for the truth, goodness, and beauty of Christendom and in order to do that, we then must combat all the lies, the evil and the ugliness of modernity. So that is all we have today, trying to break down some of the direction. My phone has reminded me to pray again. So any questions before we end with our prayer? Any final thoughts? Anybody watching who wants to make any comments or questions? We can talk about those before we close out here. Uh, what I want to do is, is tell a little story about uh, something that's personal to me. is the story of the Army of Flanders. As I said, the Cetus Internationales Patrum was an international group of fathers at Vatican II who were fighting for tradition. Well, the Army of Flanders goes back to this is this is why I have this flag here. This is the flag of Flanders. And Flanders, if if you don't know, many people in America associate Flanders with a with a TV show. Uh, yes, uh, Deus Volt is saying, uh, "Remember the Ember Days." Absolutely, remember it's a holy day of holy days of opportunity this week. Um, so the Army of Flanders was in the region of Flanders. If you don't know, it was. Flanders is essentially the area of modern Belgium, south of the Netherlands. And this was where the first major 
really critical attack against Christendom was, was beginning to emerge in the later 1500s. And this was the Dutch revolt. The Dutch revolt was the first declaration of independence before it, before 1776. This was in the 1580s and nineties, which is where the Dutch heretics used manipulating manipulation of the press and everything to manipulate and whip up a mob so that they could revolt against the sovereign, the King of Spain, the Catholic King of Spain on the basis of heresy and destroying Christendom and creating their own society. And the army of Flanders was, was of Spanish extraction, but also local Flanders, um, the, the Flemish, who were there and also other international groups that were forming together against this continental revolt in the Spanish Netherlands. And there's this story of the battle of Empel, which I just want to tell, and we'll, we'll close with this and the, um, and we'll, we'll pray our prayer. I want to bring up this excellent painting and this is by, uh, let's see. I had this, but this is by uh, a current painter. His name is Augusto Ferrer del Mau. I believe he's Spanish. El Milagro de Empel. And this is the miracle of Empel. And this happened on the Immaculate Conception. So what happened was the army of Flanders was surrounded by the Dutch heretics and it was winter and the Dutch heretics were iconoclastic. The iconoclasts, they had gone and smashed images, destroyed the great monuments of our forefathers as they did after Vatican II. They smashed them, they destroyed them, replaced them with ugliness. So the Dutch heretics had done this. And it, it appears that one of our pious forefathers had buried an icon of the Immaculate Conception in the dirt somewhere in Dutch Netherlands. And what happened was the army of Flanders was surrounded on a hill, surrounded by the Dutch heretics, and they were about to be massacred. They were outnumbered. And was winter, and they were praying for deliverance from God. And one of the soldiers was digging, and they found this icon of the Immaculate Conception, and they they viewed it as divine providence that it was a sign from God that they would be victorious. And this was December seven, and what happened was God they they processed as this this painting this painting. Uh, depicts they processed with the icon and everyone prayed to God as, as they put their trust in the cross and they prayed to our lady of the Immaculate Conception to deliver them from the Dutch heretics. And what happened was God worked a miracle by sending a, a freeze that night, which froze the boats and the army of Flanders was able to counterattack and destroy the enemy because they trusted in Christ. They trusted in the cross to deliver them through the intercession of our lady of the Immaculate Conception. Now the Immaculate Conception 
is critical because as Pius IX said, when he defined it in 1854, he said, I am defining the Immaculate Conception, I'm paraphrasing here, against those who exaggerate the powers of man by denying original sin. Because ultimately modernity is denying original sin and trying to build an earthly utopia without the grace of Christ because they deny original sin. That is that modern man denies that he needs God. They deny original sin. It's a, it's a neo-Pelagianism. They believe that they can build the United Nations and you know, all this nonsense today is trying to is trying to build this utopia without the grace of Christ. And that is a denial of original sin. And the Immaculate Conception says, no, only one human being was ever free of original sin, and that is Our Lady. Of course, Christ himself is God and man. So he, of course, was free of original sin, but Our Lady was fully human. And she alone was free original sin. That is what the Immaculate Conception. So the Immaculate Conception became the patroness of the Army of Flanders. And the Immaculate Conception has really very much been the patroness against this false anti-Christendom movement going all the way back to the Dutch heretics. Christopher Columbus sailed on his boat, the Santa Maria de Immaculate Conception. It was the Immaculate Conception that found the new world. And the Immaculate Conception is the patroness of the United States. And ultimately, as I said, the Immaculate Conception is the patron of the 19th century Contra-Revolution to a large degree with Pius IX's declaration, his dogma. And so this is the spiritual aspect. This is a spiritual attitude we need to have. We need to have this confidence that is depicted in this beautiful painting. The confidence in the cross, the confidence knowing that we can embrace our suffering and we can triumph as the army of Flanders did on that day on the Feast of the Immaculate Conception. So just a few comments before we pray. Andy says, I'm currently flying the Burgundian flags again across and used by the Spanish Tercio, seen in the picture, the flag of Vendée. We owe much to the Catholics of Spain and France. Yes. Um, yeah, the Spanish Tercio, uh, you can see here in the their, um, their fighting methods with the Spanish pike. Um, absolutely. Juan says, the modernists are great at networking and working together on the United Front. That's why they are successful. Treads, not so much. Hope that changes. That's exactly what we want to do and do our part for Unite the Clans at, at 1 Peter 5. And we really need to work together and network. So contact me if you need anything, editor at 1peter5.com. And we're going to put out a resistance, a plan of resistance against the COVID-1984 regime. That'll be coming soon. And we'll talk about that again on another podcast. Um, so absolutely. Juan, I, I think you really hit the nail on the head for unite the clans. We need to unite against the St. Gallen mafia against the COVID-1984 regime. 
these are the forces at work in the church and society against ultimately our own souls and our own families and our own children. So let's offer up on our father and we'll close this out. Stay tuned for more podcasts, but check out today. We have an article from Kwasniewski. Uh, make sure you subscribe to the, the, the website. You can get uh, emails for the, the daily or weekly digest. And please donate, 1peter5.com slash donate. So let's pray for the rebuilding of Christendom, our unity in this, the primacy of the spiritual, and our efforts to unite the clan. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Jesus is King.